Well, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philemon. And I couldn't help singing that song, thinking about Onesimus, the runaway slave, the fugitive, who had thought he knew where he was going, was kind of doing his own thing and uh, running away, right, to find uh, his freedom, or so he thought, in the world and went to Rome and in the providence of God came to the cross and came to Christ. And uh, can't you just hear Onesimus singing that song? I was running my hell-bent race and hell-bound race and it wasn't, if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would have never pursued you, but you pursued me and and uh, I could just hear him saying, all I have is Christ. And anyway, Onesimus is um, a character that is becoming more um, dear and near to my heart as, I, as we study this book uh, together. But before we get into our text this morning, I just need to let you know that tonight, uh, my wife and I are going to get on a plane and go to Australia. We had, uh, just, just thought we'd just do it, you know. Now, about a year ago, uh, a friend of mine who's there now serving in Adelaide in a church in Adelaide, uh, invited us to come and, and teach at a conference. And I said, let me pray about it. Amen. <laughs> and I said, sure, I'd love to come. And so I'm going to be speaking at their church conference. It's called In Step Conference. And I'm going to be doing um, that uh, Come and Die series out of the Gospel of Luke. And uh, Kelly's going to get a chance to teach a couple of the Psalms that she taught this uh, year with the women. Uh, going to do some lady breakout sessions. And so she's going to get to uh, be able to teach them as well. So we're going to be there for about a, a little over a week and a half. And so uh, in the providence of God, uh, Adam tonight is getting on a plane to go to New Zealand. And uh, he has an opportunity to teach at this conference I did last year that they have. the It's called in Impact Conference in New Zealand. And what a wonderful church there. And just pulling really all the believers on the island. Really, it's a big old island, right? Two islands to be exact. Uh, North and South Island, uh, bringing them all together and, and teaching them about biblical relationships. And so Adam's going to be addressing the youth that come to this conference. There'll probably be about six or 700 people at this conference, and he's going to break out the youth and talk to them about these issues. And so uh, he also got invited at the same time to do a youth camp in Singapore. And it's just kind of down the street, right? When you're in the Pacific Rim, right? You go from New Zealand and a quick flight up to Singapore. And so we thought, hey, why not? You're there already. It works with your schedule. And so he's going to be doing uh, killing two birds with one stone there. And so uh, anyway, we would covet your prayers, both of us as we travel and as we minister. And uh, we're just so blessed that you uh, are are so gracious with us uh, to let us go other places and to communicate and minister God's word. And we, we always feel like we're an extension uh, of you, our church, uh, in other parts of the world, wherever we go. And so please pray for us as we travel for safety and just for uh, clarity as we minister and boldness and opportunity and all those things that we've been learning about that Paul asked for prayer, right, in Colossians. We would, we would appreciate your prayers as we travel. Um, in light of that, this is the first time that I think since Adam came here seven years ago, six, seven years ago, that we've ever been gone on the same Sunday. We always try to stagger our schedules so at least one of us is here to preach. And, and so this next Sunday, y'all can stay home. Just kidding. Because no there's just no one else who can preach. Right? No, not at all. In fact, we originally had Jeremy Smith, one of our missionaries that we support in India, he was scheduled to be here and it was perfect timing. He was on his furlough. He was going to come and minister to you guys. And I know how much you love Jeremy. He thought it was a perfect thing. 
Well, in the meantime, God has redirected his life and ministry. They've been praying for a number of years now about God's timing for them to pull out of India and to, to come back here to the States and further his education to put their kids in, in uh, American schools for high school and college. And so, um, as you know, in recent years, they also have kind of made it a lot harder for American missionaries to be in India. They put some restrictions on their visas because of the terrorist threats and terrorist attacks. Uh, they're very suspicious of people coming from other countries, especially America. And so they've really limited what they can do. They had to be there, basically, could, they could be there six months and then have to leave two months, be there six months, have to leave two months. And that just got real complicated with their family. And they just saw all this in the province of God, uh, along with the fact that God was raising up more people to come, especially nationals, to teach at the pastoral training seminary, that they felt like it was time for them to, to uh, kind of wrap things up in their ministry there and to come back. And so they're going to be uh, coming back this fall. And uh, Jeremy's going to be starting his THD at the Master's Seminary. And he's also going to be looking for a job either at a, at a Bible college or seminary, maybe an associate pastor position in the LA area. Uh, and they're going to be um, kind of transitioning here, like I said, uh, September and October. So their desire is to come here and tell us all this in person. But in the meantime, he asked uh, if I would just communicate his appreciation, his, his love uh, to you on his behalf, and just all the years of you praying for him and supporting him. He's very, very grateful. And like I said, we're going to try to get him here sometime in the fall with his family and just kind of have a, a good wrap-up of their ministry and our commitment to them over the years. So um, all that to say, that was the announcement of Jeremy. So he's like, who's going to preach? Tyler, you want to preach next Sunday? Okay, we got, we, got, we got Richard Caldwell, guys. I don't know if you know Richard Caldwell. He's a pastor of Founders Baptist Church down in a spring area. Just a phenomenal expositor. You may have heard him on the radio. He's on 105.7, I think, or 100.3. I can't keep track of all the radio stations, but he's on, on a, nightly uh, on the radio. He's a very gifted communicator of God's word, and he's been so gracious to uh, entrust his flock to one of his associate pastors and to come up here and to feed us here at Lakeside. So you guys are in for a treat. Next Sunday, Richard Call will be here preaching in both services, and so uh, I want to encourage you to be here and uh, to be blessed uh, by his ministry of the Word. Well, with that having been said, go ahead and turn to Philemon if you're not already there, and uh, we're going to be studying this morning uh, verses 8 through 16. This is the next section that we come to, and uh, Lord willing, when I return uh, in two weeks, we'll be able to finish up this book. We have one more message after this morning. But let's go ahead and read verses 8 through 16. Paul writes, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I'm such a person as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I've sent him back to you in person, that is, sending you my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for the power that it has to change our lives. And so we come with great anticipation this, this morning as we sit and, and really humble ourselves under your word. 
We ask your spirit would illuminate us to help us to see what is in these verses. Lord, to help us to understand what they mean and how they apply to our lives and that you would use our time this morning together to convict us, to comfort us, and most of all, to conform us more to the image of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week I began with a story, a true story, about how a man forgave his son who had masterminded the murder of his family. A true story that happened down in Sugarland. I know a number of you were familiar with that. In fact, I found out that some of you even knew that family uh, personally. Well, this morning, I want to begin with another story about a man who refused to forgive another man who owed him some money. And while it's not a true story, I think it illustrates the necessity of forgiveness better than ever any story ever has or ever will. And I'm referring to the parable that Jesus told about the unforgiving slave. Take your Bibles and turn over to Matthew 18 just for a moment. And I want us to look at this story together. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Matthew records, Then Peter came and said to him, said to Christ, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now Peter thought he was being very spiritual because the Pharisees in that day had told him that they had to forgive people up to three times. And so Peter was doubling it and adding one and, uh, and, and asking, should I forgive him seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, he wasn't expecting them to do the multiplication on that and say, okay, I I can forgive up to 490 times. The point was, you should forgive others limitlessly. And this is difficult to do just right off the bat. I mean, if somebody punches you once in the head and they ask you to forgive them, you forgive them. And they do it again, and they say, oh, I'm really sorry, I won't do that again. You forgive them, and then they do it again, right? And by the time they get to punching you in the head the seventh time, I think you're really going to start to question the genuineness of the repentance, right? And yet, Jesus said, you continue to forgive as long as they come to you and ask for forgiveness. He went on to tell a story, verse 23, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves, When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 10,000 talents in that day was an unpayable debt. No one, even working a lifetime, could ever repay that amount of money. But since he did not have the means to repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had in repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. In other words, he said, you're you're free to go. You don't owe me a thing. I release you from that debt. Go and uh, don't, don't worry about it. Verse 28, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, just a small amount of money. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. Sound familiar? It's the exact same thing. He had just got done begging the one he owed money to. But notice verse 30, the difference here. But he was unwilling. 
and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed or what was owed. And so here we have a picture of someone who was unwilling to forgive. Don't be this guy, okay? This guy who was unwilling to forgive someone who owed him something. Not necessarily money, but he was just unwilling to forgive. Verse 31, this thing kind of uh, went beyond these two guys who had a problem. It says, when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. I think we, we can draw from that is that when you refuse to forgive someone, particularly another brother or sister in Christ here in the body of Christ, it doesn't just affect you and that other person, it affects the whole body. And when other people find out about that, it's grievous not only to the Spirit of God, but it's grievous to the people of God. And in some sense, these, these people came almost in a sense of church discipline and brought this case to the leadership and, or to the Lord, to the king, and said, do you realize this is happening? They wanted him to address it. Verse 32, then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from the heart. Now, this story teaches us a lot. But in particular, I want us just to zero in on this, that when we refuse to forgive others of their offenses against us, we're implying a couple things. First of all, we're implying that their sins are greater than our sins. That's what we're implying, that their sins are greater than our sins. Listen, we will never, ever have to forgive someone else more than God has had to forgive us. And when we're humbly aware of our own sins, we will be much more prone and quick to forgive others. But if we fail to, to see our sin and to deal with our own sin on a regular basis, we're going to have a hard time forgiving other people. It's like the parable of the log and the speck. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, you hypocrites, why are you trying to take the speck out of your brother's eye when you've got a big old log in your own eye? First take, the first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly so you can help take the speck out of your brother's eye. So it wasn't that Jesus didn't want us to deal with the, the sin in other people's lives. He does want us to, but only after we're dealing with the sin and admitting the sin and dealing with the sin in our own lives. And so other people's sins are not greater than our sins, okay? The second thing that is implied when we refuse to give others, is that our standards, our standards are higher than God's standards, okay? Our standards are higher than God's standards. And we need to understand that all sin is ultimately committed against who? It's committed against God. Probably one of the greatest sins ever recorded in the scriptures is that of David's um, adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. And in Psalm 51, when he was confessing his sin to the Lord, in Psalm 51, verse 4, he says, Against you and you only, God, I have sinned. And so even though he had committed a great sin against Bathsheba, a great sin against her husband Uriah, a great sin against his own family, a great sin against the people of Israel, he knew ultimately that he had sinned against God. And it was his forgiveness that he needed more than anybody else's. And so the point is this, if God forgives those who seek his forgiveness, then who are we not to forgive them? I mean, who are we not to forgive them also? If God forgives them, 
why won't we forgive them? Unless, of course, we think we're more holy and more just than God. And we consider their sin a greater offense against us than it was against God. Listen, God is far more offended by people's sins than we'll ever be. And yet when we refuse to forgive, we're acting like it was a greater offense. We're more offended than God was because he, he, he willingly forgave them. And yet when we don't, we're acting like somehow uh, we're, we have higher standards than God. God, how, you, you let them off the hook too easy, God. I'm going to exact a little ven- revenge. Your vengeance is not enough. And so even though our sin highly offends God, He graciously and mercifully forgives us over and over and over again. No one will ever need to be forgiven by God more than us, and no one will ever offend us more than they offend God. And I think the point of this this story, uh, worded very well, I think, by one commentator, said this, that, quote, a merciful God is angered by a merciless streak in his servants. A a merciful God is angered by a merciless streak in his servants. Listen, if God has shown mercy to you, right, how could you be merciless to someone else? And that angers God, that grieves God. And yet, back in Philemon, it's interesting, in this letter that he wrote to, that Paul wrote to Philemon, Paul didn't appeal to Philemon out out of fear of God's anger or of grieving the Holy Spirit, Uh, if he were not to forgive his runaway slave, or even he he didn't even appeal to his duty to forgive as God had forgiven him. We know the scripture is clear. He said that in Ephesians chapter chapter 4, Colossians chapter 3, that we have a responsibility, we have a duty as, as Christians to forgive others as we've been forgiven. And yet that's not the basis on which Paul appeals to Philemon to forgive his runaway slave Onesimus. He appeals to him on the basis of love, love for God and love for others, which is the highest motivation for everything, right, that we do. What does the Bible say? Jesus, somebody asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others, love your neighbor as yourself. Greatest commandment, two greatest commandments, most important things, the highest motivation for everything we do in life, especially forgiving others. Well, we learned the last couple of weeks, that uh, in the first seven verses of this letter, Paul was convinced of Philemon's love for Christ and his love for all the saints, for his neighbors, his, his brothers and sisters. And so Paul commended him in the, really the first part of this letter for his godly character. And based on that character, Paul was confident that he could appeal to him to welcome back his runaway slave with open arms. And so after laying the foundation for forgiveness in verses 1 through 7, Paul proceeded now to the main purpose of his letter here starting in verse 8 to the end of the letter. And so here we see Paul's praise of Philemon in verses 1 through 7 leads to Paul's plea to Philemon in verses 8 through 16. And so really as as we consider this appeal that Paul made, the purpose of his letter, it really could be broken down into five separate appeals. There's like five appeals within an appeal, okay? And so I want you to see these five appeals that Paul made to Philemon to forgive his fugitive slave Onesimus in a Christ-like way. 
You say, what are these five appeals? Well, first of all, he appeals to Philemon based on Christ's affection, verses 8 and 9. And then he appeals to Philemon based on his position, Paul's position. And then he appeals to him based on Onesimus' conversion, and then to Philemon's volition, and then finally he appeals to Philemon based on God's direction. And so let's look at these five appeals within an appeal uh, that he would forgive this fugitive uh, slave. First of all, uh, Paul appeals to Philemon based on Christ's affection. Notice verse 8, it says, Therefore, and whenever there's a therefore, you've got to ask what is therefore, and he's about to connect what he's, he's going to connect what he's about to say with what he's just got done saying. So what has he just got done saying? Review from last week, very simply, very quickly, because of your genuine faith in the Lord, Philemon, Uh, Because of your love for all the saints, your passion for unity and growth, your desire to honor Christ above all else and in all things, and the fact that you've refreshed my heart and the hearts of so many others. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you. He says, Paul didn't lack the courage or the confidence to, to, to speak with apostolic authority. In other words, he he had every right that had been bestowed on him by Christ to demand Philemon to obey a command, to do what is proper, which was to forgive and restore Onesimus. And so he could have very easily wrote a letter, say, listen, buddy, I'm commanding you. I'm demanding that you forgive him. He he could have very easily done that and been in the right. Um, It would have been proper for him to do that as in the position that he was in as, as Christ's apostle. But he didn't do that. Notice it says, yet, for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. And he repeats that phrase two times, uh, once here in verse 9 and another in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you. A second time, he wants to make sure Philemon doesn't miss the fact that he's not issuing a command here, but he's making an appeal. He was, issue, he was not issuing a command, he was making an appeal. You know, this is a, a challenge, I think, for, for us parents as, we, as our kids get older and older, right? It's, it's one thing when, you know, you don't appeal to your little ones. You, you just command them. You issue commands. You make demands. You, you tell them what to do, right? Uh, but as the kids get older, right, uh, you, you need to begin transferring, you know, the commands to making more appeals, and I don't know when that happens, and, and, and it may be in all, not necessarily all circumstances, but in some circumstances, you can, you can determine when you can appeal to them rather than command them. And uh, I think sometimes when, when you're, you're continuing to command once your child has become an adult, that's when exasperation, right, can often set in, and sometimes it's wiser to, to appeal to them. And again, that's a wisdom call, but here, Paul was demonstrating that wisdom here, uh, and that tact and that di- diplomacy with his brother in Christ. And so I think we, we all know, based on what we have learned about this, this character Philemon from the first seven verses, that uh, if Paul had ordered him to forgive his runaway slave, he surely would have obeyed. He would be like, yeah, you bet, Paul, no problem, I'll do that. And I think we need to understand that, that it is proper, it is the duty of every believer to forgive those who sin against us. And if we don't forgive, guess what? We're in sin. We are sinning if we are unforgiving. And yet because of the love that Paul had for Philemon, 
And the love that Philemon had for Paul and all the saints, it's all about love here, rather than appeal to this sense of duty or obligation, Paul chose instead to appeal to the bond of love that they shared together as beloved brothers in Christ. In other words, he says, I'm not going to tell you to do this. I'm going to ask you to do this. Again, very gracious, wise way to approach this situation. And as I mentioned earlier, the, the love for Christ and others is the highest motiva- motivation for everything we do and say. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. That's what Jesus said. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so our love for Christ is proven by our obedience to Christ. But don't miss this. Our obedience to Christ must be driven by our love for Christ. In other words, the reason why we love Christ is because he first loved us, right? And he gave himself up for us. And so simple, So it's not about, you know, oh, I have to obey. I have to do all these things, right? No, it's I, I want to do all these things because I... Christ loves me so much, he gave himself up for me. It's the least I can do to love him in return. And so I want to obey. I want to honor the Lord. And so Paul appeals, first of all, to Philemon based on Christ's affection, Christ's love. Christ's love for Philemon, Christ, uh, Philemon's love for Paul, Paul's love for Philemon, and ultimately, now we're going to see Paul, um, Philemon's love for Onesimus. Secondly, Paul goes on to, to base his appeal on his position. Notice at the end of verse 9, he says, Since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, there's some Greek manuscripts that, that have the word aged, like it is translated here in the New American Standard. There's others that have, uh, have, this, have the word ambassador. Some of your translations may have that or even in the margin. And it's, and it's difficult to determine which it is because they're very similar words in the Greek. In fact, there's only one letter difference between the two words. And Paul was indeed both. I mean, I don't think it really matters which way you go on this thing because he was aged and he was an ambassador. He was the aged ambassador, right? You can't go wrong either way. But based on the context, I think it seems best to translate this is, is that this is, he's the old guy. He's the old guy. This is the aged Paul. He was the mature, experienced man who had walked with God for many years. This was, he, was, he was basically saying, hey, I'm the wise old moss back, right, who's earned the right to speak. And, and when he spoke, people listened to him with great respect, We've got one of those guys on our elder board. You can figure out who that is, right? There's only one that qualifies as, as the old Mossback. But you know what? It's such a, a joy to be sitting around in our elders' meetings or out to breakfast and just talking uh, with this particular man who's lived uh, many years. He's walked with Christ many years. And, and uh, you know, we'll be discussing something, and he might just be hanging back in, in the conversation. All of a sudden, <clears throat> he clears his throat, and he begins to speak. And we all stop, and we all listen. Because with age, right, and with experience, right, comes this maturity and comes wisdom, right? And, uh, and, and oftentimes uh, that, that wisdom carries the day and carries the conversation and helps us decide what we need to decide on because of, of, of that man's experience. Now, Paul was probably around 60 at this time, which was old in those days. I mean, we've got a little bit longer lifespan going on in our generation, but that was old for his day. Um, but, but I'm sure he, he, he looked a lot older and, and, and felt a lot older. 
Someone said this, I think, very well about Paul. He says, Paul was older than his years. In his case, the aging process had been accelerated by all that he had suffered. 2 Corinthians 11, right, that list of all that he went through, the years of imprisonments, beatings, poor food, illnesses, difficult journeys, persecution, and concern for the churches had taken their toll. He had packed five lifetimes into his 60 years. And that was so true of the Apostle Paul. And so here is this, this aging ambassador for Christ is appealing to this, this younger man, the most likely younger man Philemon. But also notice he says he refers to himself not only as the aged, but also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, which is how he introduced himself. If you remember in verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He, he mentions it here again in verse, uh, in verse 9. He mentions it in verse 13, verse 23 about his imprisonment. So I think this was not only his way of invoking Philemon's sympathy, but also to remind him that in light of his own willingness to make great sacrifices for the cause of Christ. Hey, I'm willing to be in jail for the sake of Christ, right? That he had the right, that he was in a position to ask for great sacrifices from others. Not to mention the fact that, that, that he served as a great inspiration to others. In other words, if I can do what, what I'm doing, then surely, right? If I can play this part in, in the cause of Christ, surely you can play your part in the cause of Christ. I'm here in chains. I'm just going to ask you to forgive your brother. And so he appeals to him based on his position as the aged and as the, as the prisoner. Thirdly, he appeals to him based on Onesimus' conversion. Based on Onesimus' conversion. Look at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I've begotten in my imprisonment. Now, the word child and begotten, obviously, uh, are, are words that indicate that Onesimus had been born again, that he'd been granted new life in Christ, and that it was Paul who had the privilege of leading this runaway slave to Christ. And Paul uh, thought of himself as a father to all those who he had led to Christ. Um, this was a, really a term of endearment that uh, he would bestow on people, really only the only, two, only other two people he calls a child uh, in the faith are Timothy and Titus, but uh, he also addresses the Corinthians with these words, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14, he said, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. And so he was just this is what's Paul's way of saying, hey, listen, I got to lead this guy to Christ. I'm his spiritual daddy, and he's my spiritual child. And I think this is a good reminder that there's a, there's a special bond between a believer and the person that God used to bring him to Christ. I mean, think about who led you to Christ. It may have been your parent, one of your parents. It may have been a brother or sister, another family member, a grandparent, uh, a neighbor, a friend, a coworker. I would, I would guess that whoever it was that God used to lead you to Christ, you have a very special relationship with that person. Uh, they, they, they just hold a special place in your heart and your life. They're very dear to you because of how God used them to lead you to the truth. And so he says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. Now, Onesimus comes from the noun in the Greek, which means prophet or profitable. 
And so his name, Onesimus, means profitable or useful. Notice how he goes on in verse 11. He says, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And I think Paul probably cracked a smile when he penned that, or at least um, um, dictated that to the person who was writing this letter, um, because it was a really a play on words that I think he intended to be funny. That here this guy's name is Onesimus, it means useful, it means profitable, but he's been anything but that, right? He hasn't been useful, he hasn't been living up to his name in the past, but now he is useful, not just to you, but also to me. And so here's this, this worthless, lazy, selfish, dishonest, good-for-nothing slave who had cost Philemon a lot of money based on uh, what he maybe had stolen from him when he left and the lost labor that, that he had when he was in Rome. Now he was doubly useful. He was making up, if you will, for lost time. And so the slave that was returning was a better slave than the one who had run away since he surely now personified the principles that were to mark the life of a Christian slave. And I can imagine, as Paul was writing the letters to the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Colossians, and uh, Onesimus being right there, probably in his presence a lot of the time, uh, as he was penning words like Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those merely who please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And he may have stopped and said, now Onesimus, that, that, that's, I'm talking about you, okay? This applies to you. And, and, and when you go back to Philemon, you need to remember that, that it's, it's not Philemon you're serving. You're ultimately serving the Lord Jesus, your new Lord and Savior. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to, to have been a fly on the, on the doorpost of, of, of Philemon's house when, when Onesimus came home? Philemon's in there watching ESPN or something. I don't know what he's doing, Right? He hears the door knock. He comes to the door. I don't know if there was a door that swung open. It may have just been an open doorway. But there stands that rascal, scoundrel Onesimus, right? And he, they, they, they make eye contact. And Onesimus probably kind of had this little, you know, sheepish grin on his face. Hey, Philemon, how's it going? <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and probably not sure how this was going to go on. He immediately handed him a letter. Right? He gave him this letter. Hey, this is from the Apostle Paul. He wants you to read it before you say anything <laughs> or do anything. And so I'm sure there was a little fear and trepidation, right, for this runaway slave. He could have been, he could have been punished severely for running away. And so as, as he probably kind of just stood there as, as, as Philemon took the letter, and he, it wouldn't have taken him that long, the scroll, to read this letter. And so as he was reading this letter and, 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 and going down, and he was being affirmed by the Apostle Paul, that must have built him up and encouraged him. And then he gets to the point about he's making some appeal. What is he appealing and referring to? Uh, and then all of a sudden, verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I begotten in my imprisonment. And it probably shot right through him that this is not just the runaway slave coming home. This is a prodigal child, a, pro, a prodigal of the Lord coming home. That this was a, a believer, that he'd come to know Christ. And I think Paul knew at that critical moment when Onesimus showed up on Philemon's doorstep that it wasn't going to be easy for him to forgive this guy. 
And yet when Philemon read this, that the, the, the slave had been led to Christ, here it is, you ready for this? By the same man who had led him to Christ, I'm sure his heart just, just immediately melted toward his new brother in Christ. I appreciate what one commentator said about how we interact with one another. Um, those of us who have come to Christ and some earlier than others, later than others, some are, have been walking with Christ many years. Others have just recently come to know Christ. How do we interact? He, he said this, one of the things that makes this short letter impressive is the testimony that it gives to the power of the gospel to change lives. Onesimus was now a very different person. Like all true Christians, he had experienced the new birth. Paul's appeal is, is essentially this. Philemon, Onesimus is not the man who wronged you. He is now a new man altogether. Please love him for what grace has made him. And then the commentator went on. He said, surely this same appeal holds good for good relationships between Christians. In other words, love him for what grace has made him. We need to hear that appeal this morning because oftentimes, as the commentator says, the faults of other believers sometimes help us forget that every fellow Christian is a new person who is increasingly becoming Christ-like. In other words, none of us has arrived. We're all in process. And when somebody, some, it's, it's oftentimes when somebody offends us by something they say or they, they respond in an immature way, it, it, it hurts us, it, it bothers us, and we forget that they're a new creature in Christ and that they're in process, that, they're, that, they're, that they're, they're, not, they're not all there yet, right? That they're in the process of becoming more like Christ. And then the commentator concludes, he says, there is a good reason to be forbearing with what remains of the old nature in us. In other words, we need to be patient and forbearing with one, forbearing with one another as we're all growing and learning and, and, and developing into the likeness of Christ. And we're gonna still mess up. We're going to say and do sinful things. We're going to hurt one another. And we can't forget that we are new in Christ, and, and, and yet we are still growing in Christ. And so Paul appeals to Philemon based on Onesimus' conversion. This guy's, this guy's been born again. He's saved. He's a different guy. You need to forgive this guy. Fourthly, he bases his appeal on Philemon's volition. Look at verse 12. I've sent him back to you in person that is sending my very heart whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. Now, when he says I have sent him back to you in person, uh, I think this is a very, uh, we see the principle here of restitution. And when a person gets saved, they're immediately forgiven the penalty of their sin. In other words, that the penalty for their sin is removed by God, and even the power of sin over them is removed, but it doesn't necessarily remove the consequences of sin. There still may be some consequences that you have to pay for sins you've committed before you came to know Christ. I'll never forget this, how this was illustrated in an unforgettable way when I was a youth pastor in, in Los Angeles. 
And uh, there was a young gal who started coming to our ministry and just, uh, just really raw. I mean, just a, a gal just kind of off the street. She was coming and uh, she was sitting there in the front row and, and she was just like wide-eyed and she was just taking it all in. And, and it was obvious that God was at work in her life. And so she goes to camp. I don't remember if it was winter camp or summer camp. And she gets radically saved. I mean, she comes to know Christ. She repents of her sin. She places her faith and commits her life in Christ, place, uh, commits her life to follow Christ. And uh, she gets up and, and shares her testimony. It's just a powerful testimony. And uh, we're all rejoicing. And then here she is back on Sundays and Wednesday nights, sitting in the front row, just, just learning. Well, it, was, it wasn't, I think, a week or two later after she got back from camp, she came to me and said, Ken, I got something to tell you. She says, I'm pregnant. And I said, what? I said, what happened? And she went on to confess to me that before she was saved, she had been dating this gang member, and they were sleeping together. And uh, as soon as she got saved, she came home, and the first thing she said is, we're no longer uh, going to be dating, and we're definitely not going to be sleeping together. And, uh, and, and she broke off that relationship. It did exactly what she was supposed to do. But there were still consequences to her actions. And so she, by God's grace, gave birth to that little baby, and uh, she would come to our youth ministry with her little carrying cart there, and she'd put them right there in the front row, and uh, she would learn and sit under the teaching of God's word with her little baby. That was no longer a consequence for sin, but a blessing from the Lord. And um, what, a, what, a, what a joy that was to see her. I mean, it was, it, was, we were, it was one of those things where we were rejoicing with her, right, for her salvation. And then we were, at the same time, we were grieving with her for the consequences of her sin. And so when, when Onesimus came to Christ, whether either he realized it or Paul discipled him or counseled him, to, that he needed to go make things right with his former master, Philemon. He had ripped him off. He had run away. And so he needed to return to Philemon and seek his forgiveness and make restitution, which simply means to, to pay back what you owe. Probably the best example of restitution in the New Testament would be Zacchaeus in, in Luke chapter 19. We know all about Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man, right? who climbed up the tree to see how much he could see. He wanted to see Jesus, so he climbed up the tree, and Jesus locked on to him and said, come on down, I want to talk to you. And he led him to Christ, and this is what it said. And Luke records in Luke 19, verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give him back four times as much. He was a ruthless tax collector before he was converted, and he had ripped people off all the time. And so the very first evidence or fruit of genuine repentance was he wanted to make things right, and he wanted to pay back everyone he had ripped off. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. In other words, a desire to, Zacchaeus' desire to make restitution was evidence of his conversion. It's not that he made restitution and therefore he earned his salvation. No, he was saved and that led to the fruit of repentance of wanting to make restitution. I think this might be a good place as well to interject. How are we to view slavery? And again, we could, we could preach a series on that and Paul even mentioned the Gettysburg Address and the Civil War, and it's interesting how both sides of the Civil War, the North and the South, both used the Scriptures to prove their case for slavery and against slavery. 
So that should tell you that, um, that uh, it's not a real clear-cut issue in Scripture. But I will say this, that uh, even though Onesimus' spiritual status had changed, that didn't change his social status. He was still a slave. And that's why Paul sent him back to his master. In fact, if you remember in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul instructing uh, the believers there to remain in the same condition that they were or they found themselves when they were saved. 1 Corinthians 7.20, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? In other words, did you come to Christ and you were a slave? Do not worry about it, but if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. Ultimately, it doesn't matter because you're all Christ's slave. Okay, whether you're free or not. And, and ultimately, if you're a slave, don't worry, you're free in Christ. And so the point is, Paul didn't condemn slavery. He didn't prohibit slavery. But he called for a radical change in the relationship between masters and slaves. In Galatians 3.28, in Colossians 3.11, he said, listen, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile or a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a slave or free man. You're all one in Christ. In other words, you're all on the same level. And so when, a, when you understand that in Christ, a slave is on the same level as masters, you can't keep treating them as a piece of property. I mean, slavery is going to take care of itself. And so this is a good reminder that the best way to change the evils of society is not by starting some revolution. Paul didn't start a revolution against slavery. He simply proclaimed the gospel which he knew would result in the transformation of people's lives, which in turn would result in the transformation of society. And, and the injustices and the inhumanities would naturally go away as more and more people came to Christ. I think that's a good reminder for us during this election year, right? We've got an election coming up on Tuesday. We've got one coming up in November. And I think it's, it's easy to get... Get, get uh, so gung-ho, right? We need to be part of the political process in our country. The Bible says we do. That's a responsible Christian citizen, right? We need to go out and vote, and we need to have influence in, 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 in our government. But ultimately, it's not new leaders that's going to change this country. It's new hearts. It's people coming to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. So go vote on Tuesday. But while you're there, maybe pass out some tracts, right? Share, share the gospel with some people. And, and even if you wear that sticker, I voted, right? And somebody says, hey, I noticed you voted. I say, yeah, you know I voted, but more importantly, I know Christ, right? And, and let's talk about that, because that's what really matters. And I think it just keeps it in balance where our focus and emphasis and passion needs to be invested. Back to verse 12, he says, I've sent him back to you in person. That is, sending my very heart. Paul, Paul felt like he was losing a part of himself by, by sending him back. He, I feel like I'm cutting out my own heart and sending it to you. And it just shows how close that he had gotten with Onesimus in, in a short period of time. That, that this, he loved this guy. I mean, again, he, the only other people he called child were Timothy and Titus, two, two of his favorite disciples, his closest disciples. He says, I wish to keep him with me. I mean, Paul really wanted to keep Onesimus with him in Rome because he had become a, a beloved companion and an invaluable helper. And imagine a, kind of being chained up in a house under house arrest. You had limited mobility, and it would sure be helpful to have somebody that you could say, hey, can you go down to the store and get this? Can you go here? Can you do this and run errands? And, 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 and hey, do you mind picking up that and getting that? And, and so he was invaluable to Paul. 
In fact, he saw him as, in, in a sense, serving on behalf of Philemon. Notice he says, so that on your behalf, he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. I think the point here is that Paul knew that if Philemon could, he would have been there with him in that house where he was under arrest, serving him, waiting on him hand and foot. But he couldn't do that. He wasn't in a position. But having Onesimus there was like having Philemon there. And, 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 and Paul's kind of saying, well, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, Philemon, that, that, that this is a very practical way for you to serve me by providing me with a personal assistant of sorts. It's as if you're serving me. And yet Paul didn't want to presume upon Philemon's goodness, his kindness, his generosity, which he was well known for, nor did he want to keep Onesimus there without his owner's knowledge or permission. Notice verse 14, but without your consent... I do not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. Paul didn't want Philemon to feel coerced or compelled or like he was getting his arm twisted to send Onesimus back to him, but he wanted him to come to that conclusion on his own, just willingly and voluntarily. And so he's appealing to, to Philemon's own volition. So he, he, he just put it out there and he was trusting the Lord um, that if he wanted him to come back, he would. We don't ever know, and it doesn't tell us if he ever did, if he sent him back to Rome when it was all said and done. But then there's one more part of Paul's appeal here, and this is my favorite part, and that is he, he based his appeal to Philemon on God's direction, on God's direction. Notice verse 15. For perhaps he, ha- he was, Onesimus, for this reason, separated for, from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So he says, maybe, maybe the Lord took him away for a reason so that you could have him back forever, either permanently in this life, or maybe this was a reference that he was going to have him forever in heaven as his brother, as his co-heir with Christ, right? Not as a slave, but more than a slave. Again, I don't think Paul was calling for Onesimus' release here but he was wanting an entirely new relationship to develop between Philemon and Onesimus. He was going to be more than a slave. He was going to be a, what? Beloved brother. So while there would still be a master-slave relationship, now there would be a brother-brother relationship. Notice he says, especially to me, but how much more to you? How, how much more is he going to be a brother to you, both in the flesh, physically working hard together as master and slave, and in the Lord? That this was also going to be a spiritual relationship for he and Philemon, for Onesimus and Philemon, because they were going to be worshiping together and ministering together and fellowshiping together as fellow believers. So not only was he going to be physically working around the house and around the grounds all week, but then, as you know, the church in Colossae met where? in Philemon's home, and so he was going to be sitting there taking part of the worship service on Sunday morning. Go back to that first phrase, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while. Paul was intimating here the sovereignty of God. And God works his sovereign decrees, his sovereign plans through what we call providence. And so Paul was suggesting here 
And, and, and he was suggesting, perhaps, because it's wrong for any of us to try to interpret the providence of God, right? It may look to us to mean one thing, and it may look to somebody else another thing, right? We can all kind of uh, suggest, well, it might be this that God's doing, or God might be up to this. We're not sure. So he says, if perhaps he was suggesting that all that had occurred between Philemon and Onesimus had been orchestrated by the invisible hand of God, that God had a purpose in all of this, that Onesimus' sinful choices and Philemon's painful losses were all part of God's sovereign plan to bring this fugitive slave to Christ. And this is the amazing thing about God's providence, is that it includes our sinful choices. It includes includes other people's sinful choices that, that affect us and cause us painful loss, to go through pain and heartache and, and, and difficulty. And so we need to remember that whenever we're facing some painful situation, we're experiencing some sort of loss. Philemon experienced a loss, the loss of a slave, the loss of money, the loss of labor. And and, and I'm sure, like he was, we are tempted to wonder, why is this happening to me? What's going on? When will this change? Will this change? And we need to remember that God's in control of everything that happens to us both good and bad. Joseph, I think, is my favorite example in all the Old Testament about the providence of God. I guess second only to Esther. Don't want to leave her out. It's a great example of providence. But Joseph, you know the story of Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, and years later, his brothers came to him and uh, looking for food because they were starving because there was a famine in the land of Israel. And when their father died, they were scared that it was Joseph's time to exact vengeance. And Joseph said, guys, relax. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And see, what other people may mean for evil in your life, right? I mean, what, what Onesimus did was evil. He ripped him off. He ran away. God means it for good in your life. Romans eight twenty eight. God works all things, right, together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. William MacDonald, who authored that great one-volume commentary called Believer's Commentary, I know a number of you have that. It's probably our best-selling commentary from a resource center. It's a great resource. I came across this in it while I was studying. He said, quote, one of the hidden delights of the Christian life is to see God working in marvelous, miraculous ways, revealing himself in converging circumstances that cannot be explained by coincidence or chance. I mean, what a, what a blessing to see God's hand of providence at work. And he went on to say this, it's a mark of spiritual maturity to be able to look beyond the moment and see God working all things together for good to those who love him. I mean, it takes a spiritually mature person to be in the midst of some horrific trial and be able to look beyond that, right? Whatever it is you're going through, this difficult thing with, with your husband or your wife or your kids or your work or your finances or your health, and you're right in smack dab in the middle of this thing, up to your eyeballs in this thing, to be able to be mature enough to look beyond that, right? To see God working all things together for good. Dr. Kent Hughes said this, He said, Onesimus fled the length of the world to escape his master, 
only to meet the very man to whom his master owed his spiritual life and thus found spiritual life himself. How he must have marveled at God's tapestry. And this is a beautiful statement. The most confused, twisted life can ultimately come to be seen as a marvelous tapestry of God's grace. The evil that you did or has been done to you can be turned into the very thing that brings you to Christ. Some of you, that's your testimony. You have done some evil things and you paid consequences for those evil things, but it was that very evil that you did that God used to bring you to Christ. What a glorious testimony. Maybe, maybe you've got a, a, a child who, who is, is, is run away or is, is defected and, and is going through all this stuff. He's bringing you or she's bringing you a lot of pain and, and heartache. Listen, God may be using all of this to bring that young person to Christ. They're not with you right now. And that's hard, right? But God may be using all this to bring them to Christ. And it was through these circumstances that seemed so painful and so difficult that it was the very thing that God is using to bring him to Christ, bring her to Christ. Maybe your spouse has abandoned you, right? Divorced you, separated from you, doesn't want anything to do with you. And it's just so painful to go through that. Guess what? This may be the very thing that God's using to bring them to Christ, And ultimately, isn't that what you want more than anything else? Are you willing to endure that pain and that hardship so that your spouse or your child or your coworker or your whoever will come to Christ? You probably heard the poem called God's Tapestry. It goes like this. My life is just a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaves so skillfully. Sometimes he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. And for those of you that have ever done any kind of cross stitch or quilting, right, there's always two sides of this thing, and if if all you see is the backside, you're like, what is that? I mean, that's ugly. It's not even pretty to look at, and you can't make any sense of what that is, but then you turn it over, and you're like, wow, that's amazing. Look at how beautiful that is. Look at the detail. The poem goes on, not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and explain the reasons why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hands as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. God is a pattern for your life, for my life. And he's weaving that throughout our lives. Sometimes he's using dark threads, right? Those sorrowful difficult things that, that trials that are in our lives. Oftentimes he's using gold and silver, those, those wonderful moments, those joys, those blessings, those times of rejoicing in our life. But it all works together, right? To create this beautiful tapestry, which is our lives. So remember this morning that behind what you may see as a frowning providence, right? God hides a smiling Face And God was hiding a smiling face. God's, God's face was smiling, right, behind this whole runaway slave thing. He was, just, he was just up there smiling, watching it go down. His sovereign plan for Onesimus to, to run away and run into the Apostle Paul and then come back again and be reconciled to his master Philemon. It's a beautiful picture of God's providence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.
for your word and just the many lessons that we can draw from it to encourage our hearts, to challenge our hearts. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would make application of these principles now to each one of us, no matter where we're at in our lives, no matter what we're going through. Lord, that we would, um, by your grace, live out these truths today in Jesus' name. Amen.